Hi guys, thanks for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you're coming back and joining us, thanks for being here. So I'm Parissa. I'm Kaylin. And today we're going to be talking about um, the Cambodian refugee migration and deportation issue. Um, And before we kind of get into that, just some general housekeeping. So Kaylin is no longer with us. Like she's not dead, but she graduated. (laughs) I did not die. Yeah, she's here. here. Um, but she graduated and so kind of like moving forward, she still wants to be involved with the podcast and I want to have her cause it's like really awkward hosting by yourself. <laughs> so I don't know, our scheduling and like our uploading might be a little spotty for a bit until we kind of figure out, you know, like the good updated recording schedule that works for both of us. Um, and if we really have to, I might record just like by myself. I know that there's an episode that's coming up about problematic celebrities that I'm doing individually, but we're going to do our best to have both of us on the podcast. And aside from that, that's the only thing I can think of. Can you think of anything else? Um, No, I mean, the only other thing is that this episode is kind of inspired by Immigration Week, which has been going on this entire week. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is also kind of a personally like interesting topic to me. I did my ethnic studies um, seminar research paper on um, rethinking Cambodian refugee migration in regards to how the U.S. foreign policy in that region really helped facilitate the need for refugee migration out of the country. And now what's going on currently with um, the systematic mass deportation of a lot of those refugees who came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. because they were welcomed as refugees. Yeah, we'll get into it in the in whole episode. Yeah, and just a disclaimer: if you hear like cutting or like paper being folded, I'm like I have ADHD, and so my hands always have to be doing something, and so that's I'm just just cutting and shit. <laughs> oh my god, do we have to censor that? Oh no. Ah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. All right. Um. So let's just dive in. It's gonna be just a disclaimer. Also, this is gonna be kind of a confusing topic I think um, it's one that's got a lot of twists and turns in terms of what's been, what was going on politically um, even like political ideologies amongst like certain like key players within this whole like situation so we're going to start with setting the historical context mm-hmm. um, and so Cambodia as a country um, in 1864 became a French protector or really essentially a French colony Um, This was actually really more of a beneficial relationship between the two countries. So Cambodia could use the the French to protect them from further encroachment by um, Thailand or what was known as the Kingdom of Siam and Vietnam because from 1431 on, Cambodia was just continually being colonized by those two countries. So they were kind of tired of it, to be quite frank, and um, kind of turned to the French for quote-unquote protection um but the French could then use Cambodia as kind of a buffer um area because the the English at that time had a lot of trading interests in both Thailand and Vietnam so they could buffer those two countries because they were kind of Cambodia's in the middle of those two uh countries and they could also have access to the Mekong River which would give them an important route into China which was another like big player at that time within like the Asian continent Mm -hmm. Um, and so how the French would govern over Cambodia at this time, they would, um, really put in place a figurehead monarch, 
um, this the idea was that you know the people of Cambodia were kind of used to a monarchy, so they're like, oh, we'll just do that and we'll stick with that. But this monarch really has no power. They were really careful about choosing specific families that were um, easily manipulated or influenced by the French or were very pro-French. And so the last ruler that was actually chosen by the French was this guy named Prince Nordam Sihanouk, whose grandfather was actually grandfather or great grandfather. Um, was actually the person who signed the Protectorate Treaty that made Cambodia a colony. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why he was chosen was because of his quote-unquote pliable youthfulness. Mm -hmm. So you see this strategy going in with why they chose this guy. Yeah. Um, this would actually end up kind of biting them in the butt. Um, Prince Sihanouk was someone who was very politically fickle. Um, this will play in like later when we talk about the history of Cambodia. Um, so he started out as a monarch. He was chosen by the French and was placed in power as the king as a monarch. Um, he was originally pro-French. Um, but he was obsessed with making sure that his political longevity could last as long as possible. So he ended up actually, he was a monarch um, when the movement for Cambodian independence got in really was getting really popular with like the general public and the people. Um, he decided to change his stance, became very anti-French, mm -hmm. pro-Cambodian independence, mm -hmm. declared himself socialist. Mm -hmm. um, later on, you'll see that he becomes a communist. Mm -hmm. um, so this guy went from monarch, socialist, communist. Yeah. Um, and then eventually back in the 1990s, uh, he came back to Cambodia after he was ousted in the 70s. We'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. um, he served as head of state and then came back as a king. Mm. so this guy really like he did it all he did it he, all. like he literally cooked the food he washed the dishes he prepared it he like played music while you ate your dinner like this. <laughs> but the crazy thing is like i don't know i feel like socialism and communism are very especially socialism are very mm -hmm. like frequently used words because mm -hmm. like doesn't bernie say that he's a democratic socialist yeah and like i feel like a lot of people are like like, people on Twitter, mm -hmm. they have, like, communist in their bio, and they have, like, the little, like, what is it, like, the sickle thing? Yeah, like, the scythe and the... Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm just kind of, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't really know! Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, yeah. political, like, movements going on in Cambodia, especially right after decolonization, which actually ended up happening in 1954. Mm -hmm. So Prince Sihanouk was one of the major players in getting that to happen. Um, and... That was solidified with the Geneva Accords that happened in that same year. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the stipulation in the Accords was that the newly formed countries in Southeast Asia at that time um, were supposed to be neutral in the larger context of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And Sihanouk was a guy who really bought into this. So he was like staunchly dedicated to this idea of Cambodian neutrality. Mm -hmm. um, he was like, we're neutral. We're not going to pick a side, so to speak. Um, you know, while he was in power as prime minister from 1955 to 1970, that was his first reign. Um, he accepted aid from both China and the U.S., which mm. the U.S. was not a huge fan of. Yeah. China at this time was a communist country. Hella communist. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are they, they're so communist, aren't they? I think technically, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, I can't really speak to that, though. Yeah, me either. Um, but this Cambodian neutrality is interesting because this U.S. saw it as a threat to their interests in the region. So what they, all, they were like, yeah, they were like, oh, you're neutral. That means you're what they called pro-red neutralism, which meant that they're in their eyes, you can you couldn't be neutral in this issue. Yeah. By being neutral, that meant you were on the other side or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, this was really happening at the height of, like, anti-communist sentiment, paranoia. It was the 50s um, back in the States. So you had McCarthyism and all that stuff, like, really playing into all this sort of thing. What also made it difficult to deal with Sihanouk was that he was not only politically fickle, he was extremely sensitive. So he was one of those people that... When they say women can't rule a country... Okay, this guy... This guy's nuts. He... um, it's so interesting. <laughs> and it's like, it's something baffling to me, but he, any like criticism on, that was placed on his policy, he took as personal criticism. So he was like, he took things very personally. Um, he was mercurial, unpredictable. And so it made it really hard to get onto like good terms with him, which is why the US had a lot of issues, um, starting with the Eisenhower administration. Yeah, so getting into Eisenhower, um, a.k.a. how the U.S. made things worse. <laughs> so he began his presidential terms just when Cambodia was decolonizing. And so Nixon's administration had also... No, Eisenhower's administration. Oh, Eisenhower's... <laughs> sorry. Nixon will come later. He's Eisenhower's <laughs> administration took to diplomatic action to try and sway Cambodia away from communism and towards the U.S., and this was nearly impossible because Sihanouk yes, was not only easily offended, but his unwavering support of neutrality made this difficult. And so also in the Geneva Accords of 1954, neutrality of newly formed nations, which would include Cambodia, were stipulated and needed to be technically respected by other countries who were in attendance, which included the U.S., um, and there was a really big blunder, which was a failed coup, and the U.S. tried to unseat Sihanouk by supporting a coup that was organized by Vietnam. Um, the pronunciation yeah. on this so one? this was back when Vietnam was the Republic of Vietnam, and mm-hmm. so this was more really generally dealing with the South Vietnamese, and their leader was Nhiu Dien. Dien. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my Vietnamese accent's really bad, so I apologize. Mine is even worse. <laughs> so, Neo Dim Dim, and the person that they were going to replace him with was Dap Chun. And so it's hard to figure out the role that the U.S. played. Um, but what is clear is that the U.S. at least knew what was going on, whether or not they were directly involved in planning um, and helping facilitate the coup. And when Sihanouk found out about the potential role that the U.S. played in getting him unseated, that would pretty much create a rift between the two countries that would never really be resolved, which is like, can you blame him? <laughs> really? Yeah. No, it was, there was a lot of, like, two-faced kind of, like, things going on. The U.S. had a lot of CIA, like, people on the ground in Cambodia getting, like, intelligence and things like that. Yeah. So it was very clear that they at least knew that there were people that were really unhappy with um Sihanouk and wanted him out with even within the country of Cambodia and like disregarding like what was what Vietnam was doing mm-hmm. um this coup also kind of put like the U.S. in kind of this awkward position too mm. Vietnam or South Vietnam was an ally or they were seen as an ally or like a country that the U.S. was trying to like help with yeah. their like new help quote-unquote yeah, yeah whatever I mean they're there's a whole that's a whole other episode that ass, yeah. um but it's like kind of put this in, the, in this weird position where they wanted, I guess, to support the Vietnamese and like show that they were like allies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they were trying to work on Cambodia and making sure there were good relations with the Cambodians, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that things were going smoothly there. So this was really like an awkward thing. Um, and it was definitely one of those things that like really shifted 
the nature of relations between Cambodia and Isaac and uh, the U.S., mm-hmm. which is interesting because this happened at the kind of the tail end of Eisenhower's um, terms as president in the U.S. and with the amount of kind of faltering that they had done within you know relations and relation building, um, this is why actually Kennedy and um, LBJ mm-hmm. didn't really try and deal with Cambodia that much. They were like, it's not worth the risk yeah. of you know. I don't know what whatever they, yeah, yeah whatever the consequences the what they saw as a threat of like Cambodia falling to communism they didn't really see the point of like trying to take that risk with Cambodia when they were on such shaky grounds and instead focused on Vietnam and Laos yeah um and we all know what happened with Vietnam but mm-hmm. um but then so moving on to like Nixon Nixon decided in his presidential terms to go and back and try to get back into like better diplomatic relations with Cambodia. Wait, okay. Who is worse, Reagan or Nixon? Okay. See, this is so... Uh, God, I think Reagan's worse, to be honest. I think it depends on, like, what context you're thinking about. Um, There is a quote that... Shout out to Professor James Lai. (laughs) Um, He he quoted at um, the Day of Remembrance event Mm -hmm. where he said that... um, Someone had told him that Reagan's presidential term is, like, was kind of seen as, or is kind of seen as the winter of civil rights mm, in the U.S. That's true, that's um, true. So I think in terms of that, like, it depends on where you come yeah. from in terms of, like, what, like, lens you're trying to look through. I Nixon, mean, both are garbage, but, yeah. like... Nixon really, really messed up in Cambodia. Um, so just take a seat. And mm. So in this situation, Nixon is, like, bigger trash. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying, like, which one is the worst? I think it again depends on like mm-hmm. what kind of issue you're talking about. Um, also, it's like hard to parse out because Reagan also did certain things that I like, hate Reagan. He was like he did like very specific things, like he signed the act to get um, redress for Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during the war, and so like people remember that but don't remember how trash he was outside of that. And he dead ass like ignored the whole HIV/AIDS crisis mm-hmm. and like started the war on drugs. Yeah. He is a demon. <laughs> he, I think Reagan was more, like, I think politically savvy in terms of, like, doing other things to, like, cover up how bad oh, it was. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, and yet he was also governor of California. Hey, but whatever. We can yeah. do a whole episode of <laughs> Okay, so we'll um, continue. But yeah, so Nixon decided it was time to go back into Cambodia, I guess. <laughs> um, and instead of diplomatic action, what he favored was aggressive military escalation Love in it. Cambodia to, quote-unquote, stamp out the threat of communism. But, remember, this is when Cambodia was still very staunchly dedicated to their idea of neutrality. Sihanouk is still in power. He's, like, very certain. He's like, you're not going to waver me from this position. We are neutral. Like, don't try and do anything. Which is smart. Like, to be fair, looking back, I'm like, if I'm surrounded by a communist country as big as China, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like, no, like, we're anti-communism. Because then, all <laughs> of y'all are going to die, you know? Yeah. So it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, in any situation that is not super clear-cut, mm-hmm. in any situation except, like, the oppressed versus, like, the oppressor, it's okay to be neutral. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, and it's funny, too. Actually, this goes back to, like, when Eisenhower is also in... Uh, was still uh, president, but Sihanouk actually found, and this goes back to like him being sensitive and stuff. Mm. He found out that the U.S., like certain people in the U.S. public, 
so we hadn't, hadn't heard from like the top level um, and like lawmakers and things mm-hmm. like that, but he had heard like the U.S. public was not happy with the Cambodian neutrality. Mm-hmm. So he literally cried. No, he penned an essay and posted it and like published it in the Foreign Affairs like journal from that time oh. called "The Dictate of Necessity" and talked about how for him Cambodian neutrality was quote unquote a dictate of necessity because Cambodia is such a small country, mm-hmm. um, and he was like. Well, you know, aid was given to us by China unconditionally, so they are unconditionally in quotes yeah. because like nothing's given unconditionally. And True. then he was like, "Well, we accept- so we accepted that aid, but we also accepted aid from the U.S., which was also given unconditionally. So why are y'all coming at us? Mm. We're, like, being neutral. We don't owe you anything." Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was kind of a side note, but again, just remember he was a big fan of neutrality, but also very sensitive. Do you agree with his stance on neutrality? I think, I think it's hard because his stance on neutrality was very much to try and try and play to the interests of like everyone. So he was like yeah. one of those people that would like say what you wanted to hear, like a people pleaser. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was, I think it was also like doing my research and things like that. And also, this was only done in one quarter. So like, there's mm-hmm. definitely more research that I need to that I want to build off on. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the research I have, like. It was just hard to get a good read on this guy because yeah. he was he was really good at playing the room. He was really good at like appeasing people. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very charismatic. Um, yeah. The people in Cambodia really loved him. That we'll get into that a little later. But um, so Nixon, he tried to do this military escalation, and one of those things was called what was called Operation Menu, mm. and this was a covert mission um, because of the fact it was Cambodia was a neutral country, so they couldn't really do things to Cambodia yeah. directly. Um, so Operation Menu was a covert military action in Cambodia in which the U.S. forces um, dropped bombs over Cambodia in the, over the countryside that was adjacent to the Vietnam border. Um, and K- Henry Kissinger, the head of the CIA under Nixon, what a guy. Um, <laughs> but he called this not, this is a quote from him, it's not a bombing of Cambodia, but a bombing of North Vietnamese in Cambodia. So what they had heard was that there was intelligence reports that there were certain com- communist um, North Vietnamese sanctuaries in Cambodia in the countryside. So I guess their solution to that was just to carpet bomb the regions that they thought would have like communist sanctuaries. Mm. What really ended up happening was a vast majority of those people were just Cambodian peasants living in, like, the countryside. And, you know, this hella reminds me of, like, remember when Obama was president and mm-hmm. ISIL slash ISIS was, mm-hmm. like, really becoming a thing? And, mm-hmm. you know, like, they would send drone bombs just to, mm-hmm. like, bomb them out and kill them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, like, I love Obama. I think he was probably one of the best, like, modern presidents, if mm-hmm. not the best compared to mm-hmm. the other idiots, you know, mm-hmm. that, like, we have to compare him to. But something that, like... I can't do is just pretend like his entire like eight mm-hmm. years as president was flawless because like a lot of people including myself disagree with the whole drone bombing mm-hmm. thing because again like 99% of the people killed were just normal day-to-day civilians mm-hmm. living their life mm-hmm. and like to me I don't know that mm-hmm. that decision was just not like justified mm-hmm. so yeah no it was it was massive um, there were certain places that had a thousand plus like just Cambodian peasants living there mm-hmm. um and thinking about the fact that Cambodia is not like the hugest country and yeah. the countryside even has less people um 
And what's interesting is that we talk about Cambodian refugee migration, and mm-hmm. a lot of people see it as like, oh, they're refugees fleeing from the Khmer Rouge and Cambodian genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. So a lot of the reports of refugee migration happening before you know the Khmer Rouge Cambodian genocide ever came to be. Mm-hmm. A lot of the first refugees fleeing were fleeing from the countryside and going to like major cities like Phnom Penh, which was mm-hmm. which is Cambodia's um, capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have asked them, like, well, why were you fleeing? They were like, we're fleeing the bombing. Mm. Like, we're not going to just sit around and, like, and and end up, like, dead because yeah. there are bombs being dropped on us. And, like, who's dropping these bombs? Things like that. So the first wave, our first movement of, refu- of Cambodian refugees were really people fleeing from U.S. bombings and U.S. Yeah. military action. So remember that when we talk about the whole Khmer Rouge and Cambodian genocide. Yeah. Um, and... What Nixon did successfully that Eisenhower tried to do was he unseated Sian Nuuk. Mm. So he helped organize a coup in 1970 um, with this guy named Lon Nol, who was actually serving as prime minister under Sian Nuuk. Wow. Lon Nol. Be your own friends. <laughs> be your own parliament yeah. and government. Lon Nol was really, he did not like neutrality because he saw it as Sian Nuuk was now trying to play the game of like communism mm. and like being really appeasing to the communists and things like that. So he agreed with the U.S. really, essentially, that seeing Nuke was not being anti-communist enough. Yeah. Um, and he... Well, what happened was that seeing Nuke was abroad and Lundell decided to seize power while he was abroad. Um, and the reason why he was actually picked and really supported by the U.S. because he was he was a really weak leader. Mm. He became over-dependent on U.S. aid. Um he was really a puppet for them and because of that and because then the over-dependency on USAID mm-hmm. really ushered in, you know, the Khmer Rouge oh. um, and the Cambodian genocide. I mean, um, it makes sense, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is that with this unseating of Sian Nuke, this is when Sian Nuke decided to join the Khmer Rouge and the Communist <laughs> Party because he was like, you know what? Um... This is like not necessarily the option that I want to. Like he he joined yeah. the, his enemies essentially. He he's the one who coined the Khmer Rouge name. Really, because Rouge is red in French, red communism. Yeah. And so wait wait, and Khmer, Khmer is, means communism. No, Khmer means um, it's like the ethnic like uh, ethnic majority in Cambodia. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so he actually coined that name. Do they speak Khmer also? I think so. I think that's the okay. name of their language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. But, you know, he en- ended up moving over to the Khmer Rouge, and Sinuk was still someone really popular with, like, the people, the people and, like, the working class. They saw- still saw him as, like, kind of the God-chosen leader of Cambodia. He was their monarch. He was their leader. Um, so he was really popular still. Mm-hmm. So when he switched over to Khmer Rouge... They were like, oh, my God, what just uh, happened? <laughs> yeah, no, it was nuts. And the Khmer Rouge, you know, slowly and slowly, they were building up their forces up in, like, the mountains of... Cambodia and the countryside, mm-hmm. I mean, in the forests, and um, slowly taking one by one, like, bigger and bigger urban areas before they got to Phnom Penh. Mm. Um, and on April 17th, 1975, which is, the anniversary is coming up in, like, five days, we're mm. taping this on the 12th, um, April 17th, 1975 was the fall of Phnom Penh. So this mm. is when the Phnom, Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, was taken over by communist forces. Mm-hmm. Important to note, this happened two weeks before the fall of Saigon, mm. which was the fall of the 
South Vietnamese Republic in Vietnam to the communist forces. Um, and I think a lot of people remember that anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly do, um, being someone who is Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fall of Cambodia happened before mm-hmm. um, Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. And so once the city was taken over, what was known as mass evacuations began. So mm-hmm. the Khmer Rouge decided that they were going to build an agrarian utopia. Um, and that meant no cities, mm-hmm. agrarian, you know, countryside yeah. rule. Um, so anyone who was in the urban areas were taken out and marched into the countryside, mm-hmm. like physically marched. They were walked over. Yeah. This included the people in the hospitals too. Like people in the hospitals were dying who needed treatment. They were like physically taken out and like forced to march out mm-hmm. to the countryside. A lot of people didn't make it. Yeah. A lot of elderly, a lot of young people just died on the journey. I don't know how much you know about the Cambodian genocide, but have you read the book, um, First They Killed My Father? I've heard of it. It's on my reading list. I it is such yeah. a good book. Mm-hmm. And like, from what I understand, the way that the genocide was meant to be was kind of like, they really valued people who like, worked with their hands mm-hmm. and were like farmers or like day laborers mm-hmm. and people who didn't have jobs like that, who had maybe more cushy jobs as mm-hmm. like administrators or officials, mm-hmm. like, they were just like, no, we want all of them exterminated because mm-hmm. we want our society to be completely mm-hmm. reliant on, like, the really hardworking people mm-hmm. who have, like, rough hands and really mm-hmm. tan skin. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, like, I think in her family, her dad pretended to be somebody who was, like, a day laborer mm-hmm. um, just to be able to survive, mm-hmm. like, the initial executions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and the initial executions were, um, it was... And it's hard because I, like, had to read a lot of, like, um, ethnographies or, like, first-hand accounts of what was going on um, from people who were able to get out, mm-hmm. particularly foreigners. So, like, they let the foreigners leave. Yeah. Um, but anyone who was associated in any way to the Khmer Republic, including um, officials, like, administrators, royal leaders, including their families. Like, secretaries, literally. Yeah. yeah. Anyone who was deemed part of that or deemed not a true Khmer um, in their eyes, mm-hmm. anyone who was an ethnic minority, religious minority, things like that, they were all, like, taken out. Anyone who was associated with religion was taken out. Mm-hmm. Um, Temples were destroyed yeah. also. I think mm-hmm. there's a big temple in Phnom Penh where, mm-hmm. like, that temple was completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So things were really, like, they were, they gutted the city. Like, mm-hmm. of the people, of, like, things that were re- representative of the public and things like that. So it was just... Things were just wiped out. This is super devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Khmer Rouge and Cambodian genocide um, were seen as the direct cause for the need for Cambodian re- refugee migration mm-hmm. to the U.S. and by people in the U.S. So if you look at like old like, newspaper articles, it talks about the devastation, um, the oppressive regime, the scary communists and things like that, mm-hmm. um, and what was going on there. Um, but there was no... And even like I found congressional testimony where there was a hearing with the... House of Representatives, and they were talking about um, the Cambodian refugee crisis and the need for accepting more refugees and things like that um, in 1985. Um, the Cambodian genocide was the only reason that they stated was as like why people were leaving Cambodia. No mention of the carpet bombings by the Nixon administration. No mention of how the U.S. right after decolonization went into the went into this country that was in this transition period knowing it would really destabilize yeah. and potentially mm-hmm. throw it into a situation like this. Yeah. yeah. So the US definitely had a hand to play in like what came out. Um, there's a lot there's some arguments made by people that 
you know, really the bombing by the U.S. was what helped really, um, I think, radicalize a lot of Cambodians because mm. here, what else are they going to do? They're, you're getting bombed by a country that you did not see as an aggressor, yeah. um, that you don't know why, like, we didn't do anything to you, mm. so why are you now bombing us? Um, and so there was a lot of frustration with that, and I think also paired with the fact that Sihanouk jumped ship to join the Cambodian communists mm-hmm. um, did not help. And that was also really seen as a reaction to what the U.S. was doing um, yeah. in Cambodia. And so that's kind of the quick summary of like what happened historically in Cambodia. Um, I'm going to just jump really quickly to like today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of Cambodians um, moved to the U.S. in like the 80s, late 70s. Um, and they had a lot of issues trying to resettle and kind of adjust to where they were going. They were often placed in urban areas, urban inner cities that were um, often over-policed and had high rates of poverty. Um, a lot of communities of color um, were living there. So there are a lot of Cambodians in Long Beach in mm-hmm. Southern California, a lot of them in the East Bay up here, Hayward, um, Oakland, um, San Leandro, a lot of, and, and not in like, the higher socioeconomic economic status places yeah. um, within those cities. And they were also coming from a rural context. So Cambodia, again, agrarian utopia. Mm-hmm. No no one was really coming from the cities anymore. People were coming from urban context yeah. or rural context and now they're putting they're being put in urban environments that mm-hmm. they didn't know how to adapt to. Yeah. Additionally the US wasn't properly funding programs to help refugees resettle. And they also took what was what I call a one size fits all approach. Mm. So they just use the methods they use with the Vietnamese refugees um, that were successful, and they were like, "Oh, it's success! It's a success!" So we'll use it for the Cambodians. Yeah. Not doing the research on like the different contexts, um, the different push factors that brought them to the U.S. What was going on, mm-hmm. um, and like there was a lot of lack of like language um, support and things like that. And so that's why I think there's a reason of. I think a lot of like Vietnamese refugee like families have been able to be a little more successful in resettling to the U.S., whereas like Cambodian refugees are often not. Um, and so, because of this, a lot of the issues of acculturation. There were a lot of Cambodian youth who came and made the journey to the U.S. Um, as part of the refugee migration. Many of them were born in refugee camps along the way, um, and so they got to the U.S. They were like maybe three to like less than th- less than thirteen years old. Yeah. So. Most of their life was spent in the U.S., um, and many of them fell into what is known as quote-unquote deviant behavior or criminal behavior, so a lot of them formed or joined youth gangs. Um, just to survive, they had no means of, like, how else are you going to make money in some ways, or um, just for protection. They were, you know, scared in this new environment. Um, a lot of times there were racialized, um, there was racialized violence targeting them and their families, and so they were like, they formed these groups to protect themselves, essentially, from what was happening. Um, and a lot of them ended up getting convicted for certain crimes. Um, and many of them have served or are serving their sentences in prison right now. Mm-hmm. However, in 1992, our buddy Bill Clinton mm-hmm. <laughs> signed a law called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Very problematic language. Um, uh, yeah, oh my god. <laughs> but... 
what it was part of his attempt to be like seen as like quote unquote tough on crime so Clinton did a lot of problematic things that you know we're still inflating effects of today um and in this law it allowed for green card holders to be deported for certain crimes and so I think the language of deportation and um things like that happening today are seen as like oh well it's only for people who are like undocumented Mm. no that's not the case these people are documented um in some cases they were actually told by certain people that they would be forever safe from deportation but now because they have these convictions they are now vulnerable to deportations even though not only are the u.s permanent residents legally they have a green card um some of them are even married to U.S. citizens, and that doesn't keep them safe from deportation either. Mm. And this is all because of a 1992 law called the Illegal Immigration yeah. Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, in which this created the whole good versus bad immigrant rhetoric of like, mm. well, you're not a good immigrant, so we're going to expel you from our country completely. They don't expel, like, convicted Americans. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like, I don't know, it's just, it's unfortunate because, like, we touched on this in our incarceration episode where we already know that um, communities of color face incarceration and like the prison system Mm -hmm. um, much more than Mm -hmm. white communities do. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like they're already at an increased risk and then now they're being punished for Mm -hmm. something that, that is just like so ingrained in the Mm -hmm. system that you can't even Mm -hmm. like a lot of times people who end up in prison are, you know, Mm -hmm. like, good people Mm -hmm. yeah and i think what makes it more sick is that this allowed for retroactive deportation so people Mm -hmm. who have served their sentences have come out and are like now trying to work on rehabilitation um reform um and things like that they're now getting served deportation orders to say you're gonna be deported uh, by the u.s government um and so do you want to talk a little more about like the current status of what's going on now? Yeah. So, current status is that over 700 Cambodian refugees have been deported since 2002, and the Trump administration has expressed the desire to continue deportations until all 2,000 Cambodian refugees who are vulnerable to deportation are gone. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. wow okay yeah and this started before trump too this was in 2002 yeah the bush administration the bush administration Mm. we're talking a lot about peasants today yeah um they renegotiated a repatriation agreement with cambodia to allow for like them to accept um refugees that's why you didn't see there aren't as many deportations between 92 and 2002 okay um what about obama do you know if he deported any cambodians he did Mm -hmm. really yeah See, this is the kind of stuff we don't talk about. What the hell? Well, Obama is sometimes known as the deporter-in-chief. He had a lot of deportations while he was in power. Um, Yeah. And that included Cambodians. What the hell? Okay, well... Yeah, and then, however, the Cambodian Prime Minister, Hun Sen, said that he did not want to accept more deportees for humanitarian issues. Um, because most of these deportations have separated families and a lot of those who are being deported and have finished their sentences, um, and are living back together with their families are victims of Mm -hmm. deportation still. A lot of them, again, these are people who were convicted as youth. So now they're like, they're just like young adults. They're not too much older than us. Um, and they have like children who are like little kids, like less than five years old. Um, there's a story of like, 
a man who is vulnerable for deportation um, and his son is autistic mm-hmm. and he is he's worked on like reforming his, himself and like he's served his time he's you know become a productive member of society a lot of these Cambodian yeah. refugees are now community leaders and community activists um, and he's now being he faces the possibility of going back to a country he's never been to before yeah essentially sorry it's okay um, yeah, and then so the current plan is to have summons sent to those who are able to be deported every four months, um, and there they will get deportation orders or often detained and then held until deportations, which is yeah. really up in the air, like mm-hmm. when deportation exactly yeah. is going to happen. Um, and then in December 2018, 36 Cambodians were deported to Phnom Penh from El Paso, Texas, and they were all literally chained together and marched onto the plane. Yeah, so what there's some reports from like um, lawyers and attorneys that were there who were representing like the deportees. Um, they're shackled together and then they kind of put on the plane. Um, they're fl- they were flown from El Paso. They had a stop in Guam for refueling and then landed in Phnom Penh. Um, and that's not even like the most amount of Cambodians deported at one time. In April of 2018. In one flight, there were 43 Cambodians. Oh my God. Um, and twenty and the fiscal year of 2018 um, had the highest number of deportations. Mm-hmm. It had 110 compared to 29 during fiscal year 2017 and 79 during fiscal year 2016. Oh. Okay. So this was a huge jump um, in deportations. Yeah. And there's not a lot of legal ways to stop a deportation. Um, I mean, pardons can get rid of the conviction and allow for the person that is vulnerable to deportation to fight the order through immigration court. But when we're talking legally, it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. That's why, like, do you remember Centoya Brown, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, it's not like she just got out of jail the Mm -hmm. next day after she was granted clemency. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to sit in prison, Mm -hmm. even, like, Mm -hmm. still, if you're waiting to get Mm -hmm. out for crime you didn't commit, Mm -hmm. and, like, in the situations for these people like waiting for a pardon still being like detained Mm -hmm. you're still kind of being punished Mm -hmm. even though you've gotten a pardon Mm -hmm. yeah and I think what's hard too is that some people who are looking for pardons are also have already finished the sentences so they're out and living with their families but they have that conviction hanging over them which makes them vulnerable um but this is still not even guaranteed because all it does is get rid of the conviction and it because of that, then it can delay the order of removal and delay the deportation. So then the person who was intended for deportation can go back to immigration court and fight it through there. So mm-hmm. here they're doing a fight through like governmental like pardons and things like that, asking governors to like sign clemency at the end of their like fiscal years yeah. and things like that or at the end of the months. Um, but then after that fight, then they have to go back to and fight through another court just to get this or yeah. deportation removed and it's not even not guaranteed there are only two people who have been a- ever able to come back from their deportation in cambodia um and this is out of the again over 700 since wow. 2002 um and i think for me this is and this is it's really heartbreaking to see this because when you go, a lot of these deportees have you know gone back to cambodia again they came as you, so they don't speak any of the languages there. They don't know socially, culturally, what it's going to be like. Many, most, uh, most of them have no family left in Cambodia. Yeah. All the family has moved to like the United States. Um, 
a lot of people have said that these deportees have reported issues in adjusting to life, so they don't have any family to support them, they don't know the language, they have difficulty finding a job to support themselves. A lot of there's been um, some suicides that have happened of like the deportees. Um, some uh, have reported substance abuse, mental health is issues, and then even incarceration back in Cambodia. Because again, it's I think this is kind of a very all in all very sick full circle thing that's happening with this Cambodian mm. um, community because in attempts to quote unquote again stamp out the threat of communism. The U.S. It essentially flattened um, entire villages, rural areas, um, and then, you know, forced those people to relocate to escape the bombings. Mm-hmm. Then they unseated a leader, a political leader that was popular with the people. Um, yes, maybe the U.S. didn't like him, but... But it preserved Cambodia so far. Yeah. And then they put a weaker leader in his place, which really ushered in... And open the door further for the Khmer Rouge to seize power. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of that led into the genocide. Um, but then now, when the U.S. is trying to be tough on crime or like tough on immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, they are now placing these Cambodian refugees who have fled the bloodshed that was left in the wake of the U.S. involvement mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia to making them now vulnerable to being expelled from the only place they've ever known, the only home they've ever known. Um, and being sent back to this place that's completely unfamiliar to them. Yes, maybe that their citizen, their, like legal citizenship, is there, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean anything when you don't have yeah. family and like mm-hmm. culture and like an understanding mm-hmm. of your identity tying yeah. you to the place. It's that's not their home. Their home is here, yeah. um, and they're facing many of the same barriers that in Cambodia that they had. In, in terms of adjusting that they face in the U.S. when they first came here. Mm. It's this, again, very sick, full-circle thing that's just devastating to have to see. Um, and then I think just, like, as a food-for-thought sort of thing, I think people just generally in the U.S. who are, like, participating in our society or, you know, um, who have gained, like, full citizenship or are not vulnerable to deportation like these people are, like, I think we have to as members of the society and in some ways sometimes complicit to like the structures that are being used to like oppress like communities from like or for people who are from other communities that we don't share like maybe heritage with or membership with I think we also have to grapple with the fact that we are we as a collective you know country Mm -hmm. are saying okay it's fine to um send these people back to a country when they were promised a new life mm-hmm. um, after de- devastation in the U.S. Now we're saying, like, it's okay that we as a country can now dispel them and send them back to the very place from which they fled. Yeah. Like... That's just wrong. How's... What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there's... I mean... The... There were deportation orders, I think, just sent out the beginning of March. Um and, or no, not deportation orders. So those were summons. So that meant like people who were vulnerable for deportation had to show up at an ICE wow. um, headquarters. And a lot of them are from the Bay Area. So a lot of them had to go to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them were, you know, ultimately detained and are still being detained because I don't necessarily know too much about what's going on in this new court case. But the Supreme Court during our finals week um, of winter quarter had. Um, from what I could see on like 
various like news outlets that I've been following, um, they essentially ruled in a way that allows in some certain and under certain circumstances for indefinite indefinite detainment for people who are vulnerable for deportation. Um, so like prison. Yeah. So they're just being held in ICE detention right now. Um, and we all know what the hell ICE detention is like. Mm-hmm. It's literally concentration or like yeah. internment camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I also don't know a whole lot about that. So that's really all I know. I would suggest that you go out and um, look on that as well. Cause I unfortunately have not had time to really look on it. Great source for that though. Check out the Asian law caucus, their mm-hmm. website. It's super informative. There's, they keep you up to date on all their social media about what's going on, in particular with the Cambodian deportation crisis. Mm-hmm. They're focusing all of, they're a nonprofit law firm, so they're focusing most of their resources on just fighting these deportation orders. Um, I think suggested readings, uh, if you're interested in more, Eisenhower in Cambodia, Diploma, Diplomacy, Covert Action, and the Origins of the Second Indochina War by William Rust. Is a great book to read just about the history, what Eisenhower did, um, and what he failed to do, really. For the Nixon camp, uh, not campaign, the mm-hmm. administration, check out Sideshow, Kissinger, Nixon, and the Destruction of Cambodia, which is by William Shawcross. Um, to learn more about the um, kind of the acculturation or adjustment issues that Cambodian and Southeast Asian refugees faced moving to the U.S., Check out the ethnography Buddha is Hiding, Refugees, Citizenship, and the New America by Iwa Ong. Um, also, Sue Ah Kwan has a great essay called Deporting Cambodian Refugees, Youth Activism, State Reform, and Imperial Statecraft in the book um, Ethnographies of U.S. Empire. That was actually just released last year, so check it out. Also, just if you do a quick Google search on... Uh, Cambodian deportations there are a lot of news outlets now picking up stories and doing Mm -hmm. profiles of the deportees or like intended deportees so definitely check it out yeah um the first four things I suggested are all available through our wonderful library Mm -hmm. so check it out like our library has a lot of great sources on it so yeah definitely you know check it out you can check out the books I checked out the books for my research Mm -hmm. paper last quarter so I read them front to back. Mm-hmm. Most, most, uh, most, most of them. Some, yeah. some of them I read front to back. But. And if you're interested in maybe like the more genocide aspect of it and how like it was carried out like on a day to day basis, um, definitely look into the book First They Killed My Father. And I think that's by Luong Ung. I'm, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But yeah, it's really good. There's also a movie that they made based off of it. I'm pretty sure that's on Netflix. And Angelina Jolie, I think she has at least one adopted child who's from Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And so she actually directed that movie. And it's won, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's won awards, if Mm -hmm. if not, like, it's at least been nominated. So Mm -hmm. I really like the movie and the book. Um, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh my god, you have to read the book before you watch the movie, Mm because I'm just like, whatever. But yeah, I really really liked um, hearing about her, Mm -hmm. like, experience, because... She was, like, five, mm-hmm. you know? And then looking back with the clarity that she has now as, like, a grown woman mm-hmm. is really, like, sad. Yeah. And I think, also, this book also just came out. Shout out to, also, Dr. Durbin for finding <laughs> this book and, like, suggesting it to me. Um, but it's called Short Hair Detention, mm-hmm. Memoir of a 13-Year-Old Girl Surviving the Cambodian Genocide. So, again, this is also another, you know, memoir. Um, and this is by Chani Chi Laos. Mm-hmm possibly pronouncing your name wrong yeah. I'm sorry um, 
but this is also another um, memoir and a mem like a retelling of the Cambodian genocide through the eyes of a child. Mm. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to really get into it yet, um, but I know it's going to be devastating. But it's something that I think all of us should really, you know, listen to or kind of educate ourselves on because again, this community is now under attack and. And I have literally have not seen one single, like, event of media coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely go check things out. Um, yeah. I think it's fitting. This is the one that we're talking... This is the episode we're doing now because the fall of Phnom Penh was... Mm-hmm. In, um, the, a couple days, yeah. It is in a few days um, in terms of the, mem- uh, the anniversary can't do the mental math right now. That was 75. We're in 2019. Mm-hmm. That is now... In 2024? Oh, no. Do not, <laughs> do not ask me anything. It is... 45? Um, 43. Am I getting closer? Colder. I think it's 40... 44. Oh, okay. Yes. That was close. Um, 24. Yeah. If, if my math is wrong, sorry. It is kind of wrong. <laughs> But no, it's not even early in the morning. I'm just bad at math. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, thanks for listening and getting through it. Okay. Cool. Well, that's it from us, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. See you next time.